a psychiatrist named Dr. Milton Rokich wrote a book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Dr. Rokich studied three patients at a Ypsilanti, Michigan mental institution who all three had paranoid schizophrenia. Their names were Leon, Clyde, and Joseph. Not only did they have paranoid schizophrenia, they were also diagnosed with what's called the Messiah complex. They all believed that they were Jesus Christ. And so in order to treat them, he decided he would make them all live together. They all ate their meals together. They slept in the same room together. And they had daily group therapy sessions at the same time. Now you can imagine with three men who all think they're Jesus, what group therapy sessions might be like. It, uh, Rokeach said that one of them was like this. One of them one day, one guy said, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God sent to save the earth. And he said, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, God told me. To which one of the other gentlemen said, I never told you such a thing. And of course, the third one would jump in and he'd begin to make his comments. And, and Rokeach said that before you knew it, it would just be pandemonium in the room, them trying to figure out who was God. And unfortunately, Rokeach was not able to successfully let them realize that none of them actually were God. They were trapped in this upside-down reality where they thought that they were the center of the universe and that everything else revolved around them. Well, we know today that the foundation of reality is this. There's only one God, and I'm not Him, and you're not Him. And that's a good place to say amen, amen right? But if we realize that, then it leaves us with a question. Who am I going to serve Am I going to serve the one and only true living God or am I going to serve the God of me, the pretender to the throne, the one who always wants to take over and run and, and drive the car and manage the controls of my life? We talked about two weeks ago in the beginning of this series, in the first uh, session of this series, we looked at Joshua 24. And we said that Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He was confronted with a decision to make about his life. He said, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what my family's going to do. We said that week that our lives and, and the throne of our heart is not a what? It's not a love seat, but a throne. It's not a two-seater. Only one person gets to sit there, and it'll be you or it'll be God. We also said last week that when it comes to our hearts, we've got to take really good care of our hearts because Proverbs 4.23 tells us, guard your hearts for everything you do flows from it. Remember that if you were here last week? And we said that we've got to take care of our hearts through prayer and through reading the Word and through Bible meditation and through accountability and through practicing holy thinking. We said that our heart is the source of where everything else flows and I can clean up exterior things in my life but if I don't go and clean up the source then everything just keeps getting dirty all along 
And so this morning we land at this place in God's at War. We land in a place where we're going to talk about really what the ultimate God is that is at war for our lives, and it is the God of me. The God of me is really the one who's trying to take over everything. And if the God of me is trying to take over my life, there are a few symptoms that show up that reveal that the God of me is trying to take over. And right out of the gate this morning, I want to give you three symptoms to know if the God of me is trying to take over your life. The first one is arrogance. Arrogance says, I'm always right. My way is the best way. Husbands, don't nudge your wives. Wives, you might want to nudge your husbands. I don't know. Arrogance says, I'm always right. My way is the best way. And the God of me says, I'm not going to listen to the wisdom of others. I know it all. The second symptom is insecurity. Insecurity, God of me, is just always thinking about what everybody else thinks. Insecurity is, makes you scared to try something because you might fail. You can't help but be self-conscious if the world is all about you. So we've got arrogance, we've got insecurity. The other one is defensiveness. And if you ever have found yourself taking even the slightest suggestion or the blandest criticism as a personal attack, then you might deal with some defensiveness. What makes people that way? Well, when you're a God, you've got to be perfect and nobody else can criticize you. The God of me will make you lonely because you can't handle equals and you certainly can't handle authority. So arrogance, insecurity, and defensiveness are three areas that can pop in, up in our lives where we can recognize that maybe the God of me is trying to take control of the throne. There's a verse of scripture where God saw this being acted out in the lives of the Israelites in Ezekiel 28 verse 2. And this is what God said to them. He said, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God. But you're a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. So when we're talking about gods at war, really what it comes down to, it's God versus me. It's the flesh versus the spirit. And all the other gods that we can talk about who are trying to battle for that seat on the throne of our lives, they all really come down at one place and one time or another of trying to take God off the throne and trying to put me in the place of God. So over the last few weeks, we've looked at a couple of different scriptures that we've kind of nailed in the ground and walked out of here with. I just mentioned them, Joshua 24 and Proverbs 4.23. Well, this morning, instead of us walking out with one scripture that you can just chew on, I'm going to give you a little bit more. We're going to look at an entire chapter in the Bible. It's a story that we don't look at very often, and actually it's a very unusual story. If you were to see it played out in a movie, it would look like something you would see on the sci-fi channel, I suppose. But it's found in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, 
Turn with me right now to Daniel chapter 4 and just leave them there this morning because we're going to go through the entire chapter this morning as we talk about this battle with the God of me. Daniel is in the back of the Old Testament. It's behind Ezekiel. It's kind of tucked away. If you've got, a, if you've got an old school Bible, as I say, um, it, it's one of the tougher ones to find. But keep searching. It's there. So go to Daniel chapter 4. Now, in Daniel chapter 4, one of the things that makes this chapter really unique is that it is written by one of the most evil pagan monarchs of all time. This chapter is written by King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon at that time. And Babylon was the most powerful city on the planet. Babylon is located in what is today known as Iraq. So it's no coincidence that Saddam Hussein and his reign from the late 70s to the early 2000s looked at King Nebuchadnezzar as a mentor, as somebody he wanted to aspire to be like. In fact, one of the titles that Saddam gave himself was successor of Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to be like Nebuchadnezzar. And all the things you hear about Saddam Hussein and the things you hear about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, they're very similar because they were both terrible, tyrant leaders. In Jeremiah chapter 29, there's a story of how Nebuchadnezzar took one of the kings of Judah and he captured him and he brought his two sons in front of him and he killed his sons in front of him and then he gouged out the eyes of that king of Judah so that the last thing he ever saw in his life was the murder of his two sons. Nebuchadnezzar was also known to take leaders in Judah and roast them over a fire until they were dead. He was a brutal, sadistic, evil man. So it seems very unusual that we would pull up to Daniel chapter 4 and realize that this sadistic, evil leader is given an entire chapter in Scripture. But he is. So let's look at it and let's see what he had to say. In Daniel chapter 4 verse 1, it begins this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the people, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now we could take those words Put some music behind them and actually make a pretty cool and effective worship song, right? It almost sounds like a song of worship, a song of praise. You read that and you think, that doesn't sound like the guy you just talked about. He would be, Nebuchadnezzar would be the last person you would think who would be singing praise to God. It would be like cutting on your radio and hearing Howard Stern say that Jesus is the only way to God or cutting on your TV and watching Bill Maher's program where he constantly puts down Christians and anything that has to do with God and him suddenly saying, I believe in Jehovah God and Jesus is his son and I believe the Bible is inerrant word of God and holy scripture. If you heard those things from people like that, you would think, whoa, 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 whoa. something's happened. Something's different. But something had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So how do we open up this and we hear that? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is using 
a literary device that's popular in movies and in novels today called reverse chronology. And the way reverse chronology is, it opens up, and, and, and you may think of a TV show or a movie that you've seen like this, where it opens up with a scene that's actually the ending, and you see the ending at the beginning, and you kind of think, how did that happen? And then you stay tuned and you realize as the story progresses, it kind of goes in reverse order and tells you how you got there. Anybody ever seen a TV show like that or a movie like that? It kind of freaks you out at the beginning, but that's what is going on in Daniel 4. It uses that reverse chronology. And we see this change when we read it, this change that has taken place in Nebuchadnezzar. So how did the change happen from the guy that we read about a minute ago? Well, if you get to verse 4, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, this is what happened to me. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. Anybody ever had any scary dreams? Okay. As I was laying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Now, think about what he just said about himself. He said, I was content, I was prosperous, and in a few minutes we're going to find out just how prosperous King Nebuchadnezzar really was. At this point in his life, he is at the pinnacle of success. He is the man, we would say. He's got it all going on. He's living the good life. But he has this nightmare. And in this nightmare, he sees this tree. And the tree is so large and so tall that in his dream, no matter where, where you are on the planet, you could step out of your house and see that tree. Imagine a tree that large, that no matter where you were, you could look in the sky and see that tree. And that was the tree. He dreamed of this tree. It was full it was in season. It had fruit on it. There were animals living on it. it. It was a massive tree that he had in his dream. And this is what he said in verse 13. He said, the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked. And there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. And he said in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by. So if I'm having a dream like that, and I'm realizing it's not because I ate some bad tacos the night before. I mean, that's more than a bad taco dream, right? That, that's a terrifying dream for a man who is king of the world, literally. He is on top. So what does he do? He calls in the smartest people of the kingdom, the magicians and the astrologers and all these people who, who can who can read and know dreams, and they all come in. He tells it to them. They say, I can't do anything with that. I have no clue what that dream is about. And so if, you, if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, it's like 
this, this thing happened in Daniel chapter 2. Because Daniel had a dream. In, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in Daniel chapter 2. It was a crazy dream. He tried to get all of his people to uh, interpret it and nobody would. And, Dan, and Nebuchadnezzar said, well, I'm just going to kill everybody who's employed by me if nobody can tell me my dream. Now, that's a tyrant, right? And finally, Daniel says, I think I can interpret the dream, king. And so in this part of the dream, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar remembers, oh, Daniel. I don't know how smart Nebuchadnezzar was. I, I would have called Daniel first, right? I mean, he already took care of it before. But he calls Daniel in again, the last one, and Daniel comes in. Now imagine Daniel. He comes in. And Nebuchadnezzar tells him his dream, and the scripture gives us this indication that as he tells him his dream, it's like Daniel's expression just drops. Because as he's hearing the dream in his heart, God is giving him the interpretation of the dream, and he's realizing, oh my. Because he realizes that the tree is actually Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, oh king, I, I'm sorry to give you this news but you are the tree. And look what he tells him in verse 25. He says, this is what this dream means, King. You'll be driven away from people. And you'll live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by. Which means seven years this is going to happen. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And gives them to anyone he wishes. So in the dream... He was telling him, everything's going to come crashing down. What, what's happening is God is giving King Nebuchadnezzar a reality check. And he's going to make it clear to him that he is God on the throne. And Nebuchadnezzar is not. So let's push the pause button here for a moment on our story. And let's consider maybe how Nebuchadnezzar got in this place. And maybe ask some questions to ourselves that will help us to understand are we guilty in any way of sitting on the throne of our own lives? And these four questions are kind of going to be our anchor point, points for today, okay? The first one is to ask yourself this question. What motivates you? What drives your life? When you get up in the morning, what is it? That motivates you. Think about that for a second. Now, for Nebuchadnezzar, his motivation was to impress other people. If you rewind one chapter to Daniel chapter 3, you remember the story where, Daniel, where, where Nebuchadnezzar built the image? Nine feet wide, 90 feet tall. Remember the image that he built and he commanded that when you hear the music, everybody's to bow down? That was the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody remember that story from Sunday school, right? And he says, if you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown into the fire. This is the same guy who did that. And so Nebuchadnezzar's motivation for life is that he impresses everybody else with all that he has and the images that he can build and the kingdom that he has created. He was consumed with everybody knowing that he was the man and he was, he was in power. And here's the second question. What motivates you? What's your standard for success? For you, think about it. What's your standard for success? When you pull back and look and you say, that's successful, what's your standard? For Nebuchadnezzar, it was personal gain. I want to get everything I can. 
Now, one way that Nebuchadnezzar and Saddam Hussein are a lot alike is that they loved both to have enormous places to live. You've probably seen some of these specials that have been on the news on the other side of the Iraq war where they went in and showed you how large Saddam Hussein's homes were and, and the, his palaces. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's was just like him. Nebuchadnezzar's house, they say, was 350 feet long. That's three and a half feet yards long three and a half football fields so it's a long house now we would be impressed with a house that was 8,000 10,000 square feet right you walk in a house that big you're like wow who, who even needs this much house except for the Brady Bunch I mean they could have used it right but Nebuchadnezzar's house was over 630 square feet large Big. I mean, it was a massive place. And so the question on the screen, what's your standard of success? For him, it was personal gain. What can I gain? What can I accumulate that's going to make me look like the man? Here's the third question. What's your source of power? For you, think about it. Where do you go when you need help? What's your source of power? For King Nebuchadnezzar, it was self-empowerment. And we're going to see that here in just a second. It was thinking about himself and building himself up. That's what made him feel like the man, the king, the one in charge. In verse 28, we're going to look at that in a second. He looks at all that he's done and all he's accomplished. And he just, it's like pumping up air in a tire. He just pumps himself up by everything that he's thinking about. And here's the last question. What's the purpose of your life? Isn't that the big million dollar question in life? When you think about that question, what's your answer? What's the purpose of your life? Well, for King Nebuchadnezzar, it was personal happiness. Everything he did, everything that he accomplished was motivating him to be happy and satisfied and successful. And how Nebuchadnezzar answered those questions is the same answers that we give when we're worshiping the God of me. But God is about ready to flick King Nebuchadnezzar off of his throne and let him realize that he's not all that he thinks he's going to be. He's about to get cut down to size. Nebuchadnezzar, according to the dream, is soon going to be out living and eating with the animals like a wild person. So in verse 27, go back to your Bibles. Daniel 4:27. Daniel says to him, okay, Daniel's interpreted the dream. And now Daniel's going to give him some advice. He says, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. He's begging the king, guys. Please accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Daniel tries to warn him. And he says, look, king, this is a warning, king. It's like he's saying, wake up, Nebuchadnezzar. If you'll repent of your sins... And if you'll do good to the people that you've oppressed as king, he was an oppressive, hateful, mean king. If you'll turn things around, then maybe God will allow your kingdom to continue and prosper. And what you just dreamed about won't happen. But look at the next verse, verse 28. This verse is just like, suddenly the story goes in fast forward motion. And it says, all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. All of this meaning everything that they just read about. Everything that was predicted. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. 
12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, This is the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Now, how long had passed? 12 months. A year has passed. And here's the king. He's walking around one day at the top of his palace and he's looking around. And who does he start bragging on? Himself. Look what I have done. He's looking over at Babylon, the largest, most powerful city in the world. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look who I am. Remember I said one of his deals was self-empowerment, and he's just pumping himself up. Look who I am. Look what I've done. But look what the Scripture says happens. It says that immediately, and it doesn't give us any real details about like how it happened. That's one of those things that later on I'm going to say when we get to heaven. How, how it Immediately. I mean, how did that kind of happen? But the scripture just says, immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, this is the sci-fi channel part I was talking about a while ago. This is that movie... When you're like barely awake and at night and, and you fall asleep in front of the TV and you open your eyes and you see, and you're like, what am I watching? <laughs> I got to go to bed. Am I dreaming that or is that wrong? You know, and, and, and the scripture says immediately Nebuchadnezzar finds himself like an animal on all fours. Y'all want me to do it for you? I mean, he is on all fours like an animal. And he's, imagine, he's, he's the king. He's the man. He's on all fours, and he's got a cow over here and a donkey over here and a pig over here. And he's, he's eating grass and, and doing what they do. And his hair grows so long and gets so matted and nasty that the Scripture says it looks like the feathers of an eagle. Y'all got anything like that on your farm? Probably not. And he doesn't cut his fingernails and his toenails so, that, so long for seven years. Imagine going up to the nail shop with that. Good luck, right? That's going to take a lot of soaking in the water, right? I mean, so for seven years he winds up and he, he turns into a beast. I mean, this is kind of weird stuff. I mean, you read it and you're like, what? But was it, did he dream it? Yes. Was he told it would happen? Yes. Did it happen? Yes. And the scripture says, here he is. He's turned into like a wolf man. In seven years, he's in this place. And at verse 34, it said, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he's telling his story. He says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. Wow, listen to this. I raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Boy, that's the key to the whole message today. I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And listen to what this king, this powerful, this guy who sits on the throne of me, listen to what he says. With sanity restored, then I praise the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His kingdom... His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All people of the earth are regarded as nothing. 
He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. This man who thought he was God had been turned into a beast. And now he is transformed and he is giving praise and honor and glory unto God. Now skip down to verse 37. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Because he does what is right. All his ways are just. And all who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow, what a powerful statement. All who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar has taken himself off the throne and has put God on the throne of his heart and his life. He knows there's only one God. He knows he's not God And the four questions we asked a moment ago, suddenly there's brand new answers to those questions when you change what your heart runs after. So let's rewind and go back to those questions again and now look at them through the lens of somebody who has God sitting on the throne. First question, what motivates you? Instead of living to impress others, the answer becomes, I'm going to please God, anybody here, you probably don't want to raise your hand, but anybody here ever find yourself in the trap of trying to please everybody else, thinking about how you look and what you say and what you wear and what you post and how you appear and how you communicate, anybody ever get into that trap of always thinking about what does everybody else think about me? I just want to make sure I'm impressing everybody else. Well, the motivation of the person who has God on the throne goes from living to impress others to pleasing God. What would happen if our mindset, if we could flip our brains instead of constantly be thinking about how does this look to everybody else? How is this going to appear to my family? How is this going to appear on Facebook? How is this going to appear to my boss? If our lives begin to be driven by that principle, only thing I want to do in life is to please God. That's my motivation. That's my getting up in the morning drive. Talk about what drives. I've seen people who have natural drive. I've seen people who God gave them no drive. But what drives you every day? Is it to impress everybody else with your ability on your job? Or is it just to please God? Is it to be the coolest Guy walking down the hall at the high school or the college or the coolest girl showing that you got it all together? Or is your motivation every day is to please God? Here's the second question. What's your standard for personal success? Instead of personal gain, the answer becomes faithfulness to God. What if your brain flipped and instead of the standard for being successful in this life as an American wasn't what I could gain and what my car looked like and my bank account looked like and my house looked like and my family and my 2.4 kids and my dog. What if my drive, what if my standard for success for everything in life was real simple? My standard is I want to be faithful to God. In everything I do, I just want to be faithful to God. 
In my business, I want to be faithful to God. On my job, I want to be faithful to God. In my relationships with others, I want to be faithful to God. In my relationships with the opposite sex, I want to be faithful to God. In the way I spend my money, I want to be faithful to God. In the way I love my wife and my children, I want to be faithful to God. Personal gain goes out the window when God sits on the throne. Faithfulness to God becomes my standard for success. What would happen if our brains made that flip? Here's the third question. What's your source of power? Now remember for Nebuchadnezzar, he's striding, man. He's walking up. He's like Ric Flair. He's walking on the top of his... Oh, y'all ain't that holy. Come on. Come on now. Y'all ain't that holy. My wrestling folks are going to get that I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's like Flair. I mean, he's walking, he's walking that walk, and he's, he's building himself up. I mean, everybody, you know Ric Flair. He's the most arrogant, built-up wrestler of all time, okay? So Nebuchadnezzar's building himself up. Self-empowerment is what he's all about. But what does he have to turn to when he's down here on his face? It says he turned his eyes toward heaven, and his dependence now becomes on God. What if... Suddenly, our lives changed, and instead of our source of power being self-empowerment, what about if you didn't have to pick yourself up all the time by the bootstraps? I don't even have bootstraps. Or you just, you know, when you're down in the dumps and you feel like you got to talk to yourself, and all right, Les, let's do it. Let's get together. Come on, you can do it. Come on, get it together. Let's go, let's go. Anybody ever feel like this in your spirit? Am I just preaching to me? Anybody ever feel this way? What if instead of trying to talk yourself off the ledge or up on your feet, you flip the script and your source of power became dependence upon God? Now, we'll depend upon God when the bottom falls out. I will too. I'm there. I'm just like you. The bottom falls out and we're like, oh, God, where are you? Where's the prayer? Where's the altar? Oh, I'm going to church this Sunday. I'm going to bust it wide open. i got to depend on God. But what if we flip the script and every day of our lives we live instead of just trying, man, how much work is it to do this self-empowerment part? It's too much work, especially when God says depend on me. And here's the last one. What's the purpose of your life? Instead of personal happiness, and boy, isn't that the American dream? The American dream. Wave the flag, and the American dream is to be personally happy. To have it all together. To have the car and the house and the 3.2 kids. Now I'm up to 3.2. A while ago it was 2.5. You know, whatever it is, you know, that's the American dream, right, Americans? Is it? That's the American dream. How do I know I've arrived? I can pull up in that Beamer, in that 8,000 square foot house and have plenty of money in the bank and the kids are running around and happy and there's no problems and that's the American dream and nobody I know has ever caught the tail of that lion that we're all trying to pursue, the American dream. So we flip the script and the purpose of our life doesn't become personal happiness which I can never get outside of Him in the first place. I can never have personal happiness outside of putting Him on the throne. When I'm on the throne, I'm miserable. I can't be happy when I'm controlling, when I've got my hands on the wheels or I've got my hands on the controls and I'm trying to steer and make it go right where it needs to go. But when I take my hands off 
And I say, this is your seat, not mine. And I want to live, I want my life to scream for the glory of God. Anybody else want your life to scream for the glory of God? Certainly we all do. We, hopefully we all want that. But what it does, it takes some, some sacrifice of the God of me. We've got to put that God aside and allow God to have that place on the throne. It's an inescapable conclusion. Worshiping the God of me only leads to emptiness. It's not in my best interest. And the God of me can come in many forms, but really none of them satisfy. I want to close this morning with a kind of to give you an illustration and an image of what this looks like. There's a verse of scripture in Jeremiah chapter 2. Where God is speaking to the people of Israel and he's trying to get their attention and let them know you've traded what I have for you for something else. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, he says these words. Look at them on the screen. Therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord. My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. God summarizes their rebellion in two, sin, two sins. Number one, they rejected God. And number two, they turned to idols. And he explains that when People put themselves on the throne instead of God. It's like trying to drink water and use water in a worthless cistern. Now, if you don't know what a cistern is, I'm going to explain it because you've got to get this part to know what the rest of it is. C-I-S-T-E-R-N. Okay, A cistern is something that they would create and build. They would dig a hole in the ground. They would line it with bricks or plaster. And the point of a cistern was to hold water in times where there wasn't a lot of water, not a lot of rain, maybe in a place that was dry. And that cistern could hold water for an extended period of time. But there was a lot of problems with cisterns. They would leak. They weren't very reliable. They weren't a great source to hold a lot of water. And the water could also go bad after a while. And so here's what God says. This is the illustration that God uses when he's talking to Israel. He says, you sitting on the throne of your own life, you serving all those idols is like if you would go out and you had a cistern of contaminated, nasty, minimal amount of water over here. And right beside it is a flowing, living fresh stream of water, and you decided, well, I think I'll go take the cistern water. That's the illustration God gives them. And if they hear that illustration in that time, they're going to think that's ridiculous. That makes no sense. It would make no sense to take my container where I'm going to get water and put it in this old stale system, a cistern, instead of coming over here to the spring of living water. And that's what God says to them. That when we're making that trade, we're getting something that's not consistent. It's not dependable. It's not fresh. It's not clean. Instead of something that is fresh, 
clean, dependable, there all the time. And that's how we do. When we choose the things of the world to put on the throne of our hearts, we choose a broken well, a broken system, instead of the living water of God. We look for someone or something to give us what only God can give us. Instead of looking to God as a source of comfort, we look to food and mindless entertainment. Instead of looking to God as our source of significance, we turn to our careers and our accomplishments. Instead of looking to God as our source of security, we turn to our money and our investments. Instead of looking to God as our source of joy, we turn to our spouse and our children and our grandchildren. Instead of looking to God as our source of hope, we look to politicians and legislation. Instead of looking to God as our source of truth, we look to popular opinion and academic consensus. And all of those things, they're not in and of themselves evil or bad, but God may use them to accomplish His work But have they become, any of those for you, broken cisterns that we turn to instead of living water? The question is, are you putting your hope in something that doesn't hold water? Is your hope in something that doesn't hold water? The big problem with making yourself God is that you can't save yourself. The big problem with making yourself God is that you can't save yourself. Most powerful man on the planet finds himself literally out of his mind living like an animal. He's got the resources that None of us would ever imagine. We can't even imagine the resources that King Nebuchadnezzar had. But the scripture says that it turned upside down for him when what happened? He said, Nebuchadnezzar said, I raised my eyes toward heaven. Man. My question is, Why did it take him so long? And as that that sentence comes out of my mouth, I think, wow, how many of us, how many times have I, I'll put myself in the same boat as you, sat there with long fingernails and scraggly hair with the cattle, eating garbage, Accepting less than the best. Over and over. You would think it would have taken a month. Maybe two. Maybe a year. Nebuchadnezzar was such a God in his own eyes that it took seven, seven years, guys. In that condition. You're looking at me and you're saying, Les, it take me about. Two minutes to raise my eyes toward God. But for Nebuchadnezzar, 
for whatever reason. And I think, hey, it's what I said last week, what the proverb says. As a man looks in the water and sees his reflection, so his life is a reflection of his heart. And his life was a reflection of a heart where he was God, he was king, he was arrogant, he was insecure, he was defensive, he was the man. Nobody's going to tell me nothing. If you can't interpret my dream, well then I'm going to kill every one of you. I will be the man. I will erect 90 feet statues to myself. You will worship me and only me. But the end of the story tells a lot. Because the man who sat on the throne and was the man wound up in a place where God woke him up and caused him to realize. Remember what we, what we read at the very beginning? Remember we said it sounded like a worship song where he stopped talking about himself and he started talking about God. Can I tell you this morning that whatever it is that's going on in your life, the battle that's going on, sometimes it's... Many times it is a battle to get your rear end off the throne, isn't it? And let God sit. But if you'll do it, I promise you, there'll be freedom. You can have all the security in the world, more than you've ever imagined, to allow God to have that seat and allow Him to completely take control. And then those four questions we ask, they turn upside down. What motivates you? What's your standard for success, your source of power, your purpose for life? Completely changes when that happens. All the other things, we got two more weeks in the series. We're going to get more specific in these two weeks as we talk about the God of love and the God of pleasure in the next two weeks. But to knock those gods off the throne, it's got to start with the God of me. The God of me runs all the controls for all the other gods. And whenever I get me off the throne, then I can start experiencing victory in other areas. Gentlemen who are helping me this morning, if you'll come. We're going to do something today to kind of close out. Congregation, if you'll stand this morning. This is, a, this is one of those messages series where, and I, I think I told you this in the first week, this is, this is one of those gut series where it's me checking me. There's not a lot of praying for each other in this series because really it comes down to me. And what I've done this morning, this is kind of, this is how I felt led to close this morning is those four questions that we asked today. Maybe you wrote them down, maybe you didn't. But I'm going to give them to you because I want you to take them home and I want to ask you to pray over them. There's a little card here that has those words up there and those are tiny, but you can read these. Here's what I want to ask you to do. For me, I'm a visual learner. If it's visually in front of me and it's somewhere where I can see it, it helps me. And this morning, before I walked over here in my office, I take this right beside my computer. So every day when I sit down in my office, I'll see this. The preacher needs to be reminded of what he preached. Oh, big time. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do is to take this today and put it somewhere 
where you can be convicted every day. <laughs> yes. It's not a lot of fun. I've made my, I've asked, I didn't made, I asked my small group to do this. A year or so ago, we were doing the fruits of the Spirit in marriage, and some of them were like, oh man, you make me every day go to the refrigerator and see that list. Well, I'm going to do it to all of us today. Take this list with you. Put it in your car. Put it on your mirror in your bathroom, on your refrigerator, on your desk, on your motorcycle if it won't fly off. Right, John? Put it somewhere where every day you can read the list and ask yourself these questions. As you come this morning, I want us all to come. And as you come, these gentlemen are going to hand you one of these slips of paper and we're going to pray together over these. If you will, come.